Yeah, I'm here to buy leather, and I'm like, can you, do you notice something? Where are the cows now? Hoagie, good thing you don't order the water. The smell of rotting flesh. 150 years of continuous operation at this site. The river, he said, was a menace to the tannery property. The panic button of life. We've got great kids who skateboard and do outrageous things. To respect and to appreciate art. Hello and welcome to Extant, Sound History of the Santa Cruz Tannery. I am Yule Gillich. And I'm Kathleen Aston. Extant is a sound installation that explores art and labor at the Santa Cruz Tannery. This podcast is an exploration of the themes that emerged from the conversations we had while creating the installation. If you want to know more about Extant, check out the introduction episode or our website, extanttannery.com. So the way that we're going to organize this podcast is we will introduce the theme, we will play the sequence um, that will feature this montage of different clips and different conversations from this oral history interviews that we've conducted. And then we're going to wrap up with a little conversation. So today's episode is about colonialism and how it has shaped the site of the Santa Cruz Tannery. And this is a huge topic and many books have been written about it. So our conversation is in no way going to be comprehensive. We will share a list of resources to learn more about the indigenous history of the tannery, Santa Cruz, and California in the episode notes. A lot of the materials that we're going to be using in this episode come from the book authored by Martin Rizzo Martinez, who is a local historian whose voice you are going to hear in this episode, but also we borrow from his book that's called We Are Not Animals, Indigenous Politics of Survival, Rebellion, and Reconstitution in 19th Century California. But to frame our conversation, um, Kathleen, how do you understand the role that colonialism played in the story? I think the biggest takeaway for me is that um, colonialism, the way I've seen it operate, tries to push forward this narrative that history didn't exist before contact. History didn't exist um, there was some sort of like timelessness in the past and people didn't have like this, like, you know, valuable experiences of culture and memory before colonization. Colonialism tells you that, I think, and tries to pretend that that's true and then builds a lot of other like value systems and judgments and ways it treats people on top of that. And so I'm really excited that given the way that history is a huge part of this project, uh, we are beginning with this framing of um, the fact that tanning existed for thousands of years. Culture existed here for thousands of years pre-contact before colonization. I also think maybe like the distinction between colonialism and settler colonialism is important. And I don't want to be like a pedantic academic um, in kind of pushing these definitions. But I think what's important to understand about settler colonialism is that all of us who live and work on this land are part of it in different roles and in different capacities. And as opposed to a colonial rule where colonizers clearly had a different place that they called home, a different place that they belonged, that they cared about, and that they wanted to enrich. With settler colonialism, this place has become home for different sets of people. It remains home of indigenous people, 
And through violent processes, it became home for colonizers and for people who ended up on this land through different processes, some of them being uh, transatlantic slave trade or migration or asylum, kind of understanding these overlapping claims to land, to memory, to history, like exist in one place. Um, and that's exactly, I think, what we are trying to uncover uh, with this project, that these like complicated histories um, exist simultaneously, even though a lot of them are contradictory and they are incommensurable in many ways. As we were working on the sound installation, the one thing that folks were really excited about and asked us for was a little timeline of um, the history of the tannery. And so we created this kind of abridged timeline that uh, is going to be available in, on our website and in the episode notes. But Kathleen, what are some major nodes of history that is important to note? So the first node, and this presented some challenges to the notion of a traditional, like, timeline in the way that I might have been like introduced to it growing up in public school in California. Like you begin with clear dates and there's like really like firm beginning and end times to things. Um, but given everything that Yulia just talked about, about these like complexities and different relationships to this land um, and like how knowledge about what and when is like valued and like privileged in different ways. Um, we decided not to begin with like a super clear date, but simply to begin with the undated um, element of the timeline begins with the Owazwa speaking Uipi tribe lived on and stewarded the land on which the Tannery Arts Center is now situated. We were lucky enough to have a conversation with the chairman of the Amamutsan tribal band, Valentin Lopez, who also highlighted the point that the colonial history of California is just over 200 years old. The indigenous history of this place is thousands of years old. The indigenous people have been here for 10 or 20,000 years before. And so <laughs> placing the kind of the details of colonial history in, in this context, I think is really important. That it's both recent um, and kind of in the grand scheme of things is a speck. What are some other nodes on this timeline? So another significant node, especially as it relates to the intersection between labor history of this space and indigenous history of this space, is in 1791, Mission Santa Cruz was built and local indigenous groups are forcibly moved into the complex. So one thing um, I want to say is that at the time of initial Spanish colonial settlement in 1791, when Mission Santa Cruz was built, around 1,400 indigenous people from seven independent tribes lived in what today constitutes Santa Cruz County. So over the next century, as the Mission Santa Cruz was in operation, uh, people from over 30 autonomous tribes from the larger Bay Area were forcibly brought into the mission. But by the time uh, Mission Santa Cruz closed in 1834, the total surviving indigenous population numbered just over 200 people, which is a fraction of the number of people who were baptized at the mission, which was over 2,200. 
despite these really devastating numbers, I do want to read this quote from Dr. Rizzo Martinez's book. He writes, But the numbers alone fail to tell the depth of loss, devastation, and trauma experienced by Indigenous people during their years at the mission. So I think it's important to understand the scope of the devastation, but I think he is right that the numbers do not tell the whole story. Do you want to read an excerpt? I'll read an excerpt. Indigenous people saw that the Spanish treated Native people much as they treated their livestock. The Spanish colonization of California involved a process of dehumanization. Indigenous people at the missions perceived this clearly, as witnessed in the statements made by Lino, an 18-year-old man who served as Padre Quintana's personal assistant. Quote, we are not animals. End quote. Missionaries taught Indians to use goads and yokes to control the livestock while using whips and stocks to control indigenous people themselves. This introduction of cattle and introduction of cows in this history kind of also introduces this distinction of human or, you know, European human as a separate species, as colonizers who claim themselves kind of the masters of their environment. This is in the story where the separation clearly begins, but both as indigenous people who related to their animals differently and also recognized that Spanish colonizers treated them as poorly as they have treated the animals. I appreciate the sort of explicit connection between colonialism and the introduction of different kinds of plants and animals um, and how then this industrial tannery that arises in part and only can arise in part because of the legacy of colonialism continues to shape our relationships to animals, for example. Many things, but also like people's relationships to the cows. And that is something that we asked folks who had worked with the leather, like that, that was an explicit question for us, like how does this change your relationship to animals or not change your relationship to animals? And I thought that that was a really, people had really different answers. We had kind of two examples of them. One person who was like, makes it easy to be a carnivore. And one who was like, it brings up these difficult things for me. And I think that that is, speaks to like this sort of people's experiences of the same thing can be contradictory, but that is still part of life and they're both still like valid. Um, and I think it's one of the cool things about doing a project like this is that you can be engaging with all these different pieces. You're not trying to say that there is one way to have experienced this. Colonialism is just so entangled in like precisely the notions of land and ownership and labor and as you said, relationship to animals. Because we're looking at the history of the tannery, cows and cattle is necessarily a part of this history. But I think cattle is a really important tool of colonization. And I'm glad that we were able to bring it to light with the story and kind of starting to think about animality as a justification for Spanish and then other colonizers to dehumanize native people. Because I think there could have been, you know, a different way to put this conversation together and like, Cows could have been a part of the episode about industry and tannery 
and not a part of the conversation about colonialism. Or, you know, if different people were making this project, maybe cows would not have been prominent characters at all. But I, I really appreciate that the way we've kind of approached this history, that it brought together these like kind of different aspects of how the environment and land and people became colonized. So let's keep going on our timeline and talk about the Potrero community after the closure of the mission. What do we know about that place? The Potrero neighborhood, which is sort of in these lowlands adjacent to where the mission was situated, um, from the 1840s to sort of the 1880s became the center of indigenous life in Santa Cruz. It was a place where a lot of people lived and also worked and also continued to participate in different cultural practices. Yeah, so after the closure of the mission, um, a few indigenous leaders and their kin received the Potrero. So these lands were given to them by the Mexican government at the time. But by 1850, as California became a U.S. state, indigenous people first became a minority of the overall local population. And then as Santa Cruz grew into an industrial city and more and more people moved into the area, they eclipsed just a couple hundred indigenous survivors. The Potrero remained a center of indigenous life until the early 1880s after which most indigenous families that survived through this era moved into places like Watsonville to continue their life beyond the occupation of Potrero lands by incoming colonizers. Maybe we can listen to the sequence. My name is uh, Valentin Lopez, and I'm the chairman of the Ama Mutsu Tribal Band. And um, our tribe is comprised of the descendants of the indigenous peoples that were taken to missions Santa Cruz and Mission San Juan Batista. The Uipi tribe who were there um, in Santa Cruz prior to first contact. And uh, what's important to know about them is that uh, they have been on these lands for 15 to 20,000 years or perhaps more. And it's that long history that no one knows about the indigenous people of this area. And so many times people think our history uh, began with the mission period. And um, it definitely did not. The mission period was 240, you know, 225 years ago. Whereas our history on these lands goes back to um, 15 to 20,000 years. Mission Santa Cruz finally was closed and indigenous peoples were emancipated in 1839. In the years that followed that, many of the surviving families relocated down in the lands behind the mission into what became known as a Potrero. The most prominent remaining indigenous community, mostly descendants of the Yokuts, continued to live in the Potrero fields below the mission bluff. The Potrero area was the last of the former mission lands to be occupied by mission survivors a remnant of the mission land-based communities that formed after secularization. This area became known throughout Santa Cruz as home to local native people as the local reservation. I think humans, as we're in a space and we're in community, we are always affected by our surroundings. And so land is that, people are that, and history is very much that. Um, most of my 
upbringing was in the Midwest, and there was huge Native American influence from my family and others surrounding that. And so I know that about our land, that we're on Ohlone land. And it's time to acknowledge that more often. There are artists that are talking about this louder and better than ever before. The, the, the Uipi tribe that was there, um, they spoke the Awaswas language. The Awaswas language is spoken by eight other tribes that lived uh, in the, the, the greater Santa Cruz area, from um, Aptos up north to Pescadero and to the Santa Cruz Mountain Ridgeline. There were eight tribes there. And those eight tribes spoke the Awaswas language. So they were connected by language. What's really important for people to know is there's no survivors from any of those eight tribes. All descendants of the Awaswa speakers have died, died as a result of that brutal conquest. And so, you know, we want people to understand the humanity of the people that were here first and how important they were to the area, what they contributed to that area. These lands were used for more than just houses as they were the site of important spiritual and cultural events as well. One woman whose family had recently migrated into the area from West Virginia described the Potrero. Quote, the Indian settlement was in the Potrero on the left side of the street by the name near Evergreen Cemetery and was fenced in by a deep ditch so that the horses could not escape. Most of the Indians' houses were made of wooden slabs with shake roofs. They had a sweat house plastered with mud on the outside. A fire was built in the center with a small place for the smoke to escape. The Indians sat around the fire. When sufficiently sweated, they ran from the building and plunged into a hold of cold water in the creek. They made their living by working for the white people. They were expert pickers of wild blackberries and got many where the golflings are now." End quote. The indigenous community at the Potrero must have regularly continued to use their sweat lodge for this young observer to casually remark about it. The local indigenous community did work as laborers in white households, but they also continued to find a variety of work. Some worked as gardeners, messengers, carriage drivers, drovers, delivery men, and field laborers, while others worked at local industries such as the tannery. The native people of this region were the first tanners preparing the skins of deer, rabbits for clothing, blankets, and tools. After grinding the acorns, the Ohlone Indians made them edible by soaking them and discarding the resulting poisonous solution. So if this were the autumn, and we were back 400 years ago, there's, there's a possibility that there was Indians here oh, yeah. uh, harvesting the, the, the acorns. Now, they had the same issue they didn't want the tannic acid. Right. See, they want to get rid of the tannic acid. The tannery wants the tannic acid. I feel connected. I think history never can fade or gone. History is the fact that... That's sorely missing is that acknowledgement on this campus. Well, the first and most important thing would be to tell the truth about who the people are. 
and you know, and, and the humanity that they brought to those lands, and how they worked to maintain those we uh, maintain those lands as sacred places. We want people to know that, that our ancestors were human beings. You know, they were mothers, they were fathers, they were grandmother, they were children. They had love. They were taught to pray. They were taught their foods. They were taught their songs and um, and their games, etc. You know, that's who our ancestors were. And we want people to know that because people don't ever think of, of, of our ancestors in those terms. Cattle represented great disruption to indigenous access to traditional lands and resources, with pasture lands quickly taking over areas that had been used for traditional plants, colonizing the environment in a parallel displacement to what indigenous people experienced. There were no cattle in California at first contact. There were no horses, there were no pigs, there were no sheep. You know, our people did not domesticate the animals. Our people, you know, um, had the responsibility to take care of all wildlife. And so our people took care of the lands and stuff like that so that you know, uh, you know, so that each year, you know, they, they can grow more and more food, so that the population there can grow, and knowing that you know all animals were just part of a cycle, and that cycle included the fungi, uh, the insects, the birds, the four-legged, and and people. We had a store. It was yeah. called the Dead Cow, yeah, which nobody liked it, but <laughs> and we had made we made uh, coasters that looked like a cattle hide, and people just thought they were dead chipmunks. I remember we had some fun experiences where there was a bin that was maybe five by five where all the little pieces of leather would go. So as the people were gathering out in front of the store ready to come in and the door was still locked, um, a few times Jeremy would bury me in the I bin. Knew, I knew you were gonna say you are, Yes, you I, I was buried down deep in the bin and then people would come in and they would just start pulling and pulling and suddenly there'd be a hand near me and I would just grab it. When we had the Dead Cow Gallery, and we were doing those harp orchestra rehearsals. Um, a couple times while we were there, people, I guess folks hadn't really heard that it was becoming an art space yet. And they came in looking to buy leather all the time. <laughs> and this guy, I'll never forget, this guy walked in and we're all playing, you know, it's like this little, you know, kind of harp thing going on. And he's like, yeah, I'm here to buy leather. And I'm like, can you, do you notice something? And then every week I bought basically about 7,000 head of cattle hides. Yeah, so 14,000 sides a week. Wow. Yeah, sometimes we did 10,000, sometimes 12,000. There are ways in which this can go wrong. For instance, Pliny the Elder remarks that a leather made from seals preserves its sensu aquarum. It's sense of the sea, sense of the waters, even after it's been separated from the seal's carcass. With the result, the seal leather swells, and its hairs stand on end when the tide is going out. That's not so bad by comparison with the hides that Odysseus's companions flay from the slaughtered cattle of the sun in Book 11 of the Odyssey. They, those hides, moo and crawl around as though they're still alive. It may be, be really easy to be a carnivore. You had to understand that when you were looking at hides, because we did have some hides that came with full heads. So you're basically looking at, most of the time the heads were gone. 
but sometimes you have with a head and a skull and you're pulling them out. They came from the slaughterhouse for some reason, they didn't get removed. And then you were looking at an animal that you had to then deal with. And it was, so it was at the most, it was had just been slaughtered. I mean, so you had to be able to kind of get over that. But, you know, just the sense of going down the, you, know, you just wonder, does an animal really know that? I, I suppose that's always stuck with me, but um, it's kind of happened with us in our industrial age. You know, we've done it to everything. Salmon, steelhead, you know, we've maybe taken a lot. I think if we all had to raise it, kill it, and process it, we'd, we'd do it differently. I think we'd pay homage to the animal a little bit more so and love it to the very end. But that's pretty hard to do when you're processing 5,000 head of cattle every day. The tendency of all this processing is twofold. First, to alienate the leather as much as possible from its origin in a living animal. And second, to protect the leather from corrosive infiltration by other forms of life, particularly mold. The point is to kill the leather, to render it as passive as possible in the face of human shaping and needs. Nobody wants a rebellious material. And when the leather has been killed, then it's ready to be turned into a second skin for human beings. I like one of the quotes in the sequence that talks about taming leather, because who wants a rebellious material? And it made me think of something that Dr. Reza Martinez talks about in his book, that the Santa Cruz mission was a site of constant challenge and rebellion on the part of the indigenous people. And I don't want to, you know, compare or kind of flatten out the difference and say that both leather and native people are rebellious materials. But to think about the different struggles and forces that resist forces of colonization, I think is also important. So it's not just a story of violence against Native people and their displacement. It's also a story of their survival and their tradition and history and culture persisting and thriving and continuing to exist throughout. And also a story of challenge and rebellion. So Dr. Reza Martinez writes that the Santa Cruz mission was a site of attempted poisonings and subsequent arrests flights of fugitives, uprisings, and confrontations. And in the years after the mission closed, Santa Cruz continued to be a place where indigenous peoples advocated and fought for their rights and lands. And I think when we talk about colonialism and indigenous history of the place, the history of resistance and rebellion is as important as the history of displacement and violence. So one thing that happened at the Santa Cruz mission is two years after the mission was established, so in 1793, a pan-tribal rebellion burned down some of the structures at the mission. And then in 1812, um, a Native woman led an assassination of Padre Quintana, which was the only successful assassination of a mission padre in Northern California. And also we should understand this action as a political response 
to the specific cruelties of the Padre and the missionaries. Do you want to transition and talk about the arson? I think my biggest takeaway from this story, which, again, I came to know through reading Dr. Rizzo Martinez's book, is that there were two young men who were a part of the local Potrero indigenous community, and then um, some buildings started burning down, and these two young men were accused of being arsonists. Um, but I also, I think, remember really strongly that they wanted to be firefighters, and it seems like perhaps they wanted to be firefighters, but were not allowed to be firefighters. So the arson took place during a period of dangerous and grim circumstances that faced indigenous families after the U.S. annexation of California in 1848. What the story of arson kind of exemplifies is that the closure of the mission didn't mean the end of colonialism that Native people continued to experience. Native families in Santa Cruz responded to these conditions with a variety of survival strategies. And some of those strategies included passing as Mexican or relocating or joining other nearby Native communities or engaging in political actions, uh, including arson. And so the story that we're going to talk about for a second happened in 1884 when two Native men were caught as they were watching a local barn being burned down. In response to this latest fire, the local police arrested the two men. The judge sentenced them to six years uh, in the newly built San Quentin prison, and they were quickly sent away within just a few weeks. But I think it is a compelling story that suggests that the young men wanted to be firefighters. And they had been denied that opportunities, regardless of whether or not that was the actual motivation. I think that speaks to the limitations of opportunities for young Native people at that time. And I think the other possible reason for the arson was reaction to the ongoing encroachment on the Indigenous lands of being displaced, of being discarded, of being colonized and uh, exploited. So... Whatever the motivation was, I think, as with the assassination, we need to understand that within the context of land loss and colonialism. I, I liked the emphasis that you had on talking about not just a story of displacement and violence, but also a story of resistance and survival. And I think we'll talk about this in future episodes, but I appreciated being able to talk to Chairman Lopez also about like the future of his community and the Amamutsun tribal band, their projects, their relationship to art, the um, way in which animals and plants and all of creators' creations come up as big themes in the art and artists of the Amamutsun tribal band community. Uh, and I think that that is a really important and essential part of this story. Related to that, there are some things that we wanted to talk about, about what the Amamutsun tribal band is currently up to. Yeah, we want to talk about what the Amamutsun Tribal Band is working on now. So we encourage you to donate to the Amamutsun Land Trust and follow the updates that relate to Uristak, the Amamutsun sacred ground that is under threat of being developed into a sand and gravel mine. 
the land trust, which they accept um, donations that are monetary, but you can also participate in different events and activities. I highly recommend helping them weed oxalis out of plant start beds. It's a great time. Um, the land trust is a collaboration between um, the the tribe and then also members of different governmental authority figures. It's a kind of unique opportunity where folks are actually able to get back onto the land and to fulfill their obligation to creator that they were never freed from to care for this place. Um, and so the land trust also focuses on a lot of relearning activities and restoration activities, reflecting the continued practice of the stewardship of the California coast um, that has been in place for thousands of years that has shaped the land as we know it today um, and is being allowed to be reintroduced. These traditional practices of managing the landscape, cultivating it um, and taking care of it. Thank you for sticking around for this episode that contained a lot of really hard histories. And we encourage you to come back in two weeks for an episode that's going to talk about the environment. For more, check out episode notes or our website, extenttannery.com. <laughs>